How'd you meet this guy? Uh, he was my house leader on um, the skiing trip organized by the Black Graduate Suit Association called uh, Black Ice. Huh. Um, we were we were House Green, so he he is the head of House Targreenian. Um, <laughs> but yeah, he's he's now he's now president of the Black Graduate Student Association. Yeah, he's good friends with with Matthew, and uh, yeah, definitely. Um, just in in like we pretend like there isn't like a secret nexus of black people on campus but there definitely is and <laughs> he's very much at the core of it <laughs> don't tell anybody that i told you that wait were you recording that ah fuck <laughs> <laughs> i think we found the cold open jordan <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back to the farmhouse. We are back here. My name is Alex Hobbs. I'm Jordan Smart. And today our guest is... Oh, I'm Chris Cameron. We're back after our long hiatus, and uh, yeah, we, we we a lot of a lot of life happened, um, yeah, but we're here today to talk Chris. So uh, officially call this season two. Just oh, to, you know, <laughs> sweet season two. Yeah. You know how we Chris do. Chris Cameron's here on the season two premiere of the Farmhouse. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, yeah, right. It's 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 great to see that. Oh wow, I've I've done something in my life where I can be invited to a podcast. <laughs> it's not it, you know i appreciate that you raise us to such a high bar but it's really you know that's it's not that high no i mean at the end of the day if people are taking time to put out some media or put out some art into the world to be invited to be a part of that that maybe i may be able to contribute that's that that really is a blessing right it doesn't matter who's doing it like if someone's reaching out and say hey you know i think you can contribute i think you'd be a great addition that's that's beautiful. So thank you both for having me on. We're so happy to have you. Um, so I, I'm always bad at starting. I never know exactly what first question to ask or where to sort of start the conversation. But what, can you, why don't you just tell us a little bit about yourself, Chris? And 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 you know, either you can start with what you're working on now uh, uh, here at Stanford, or you can talk to us a little bit about you know uh, where you grew up, or you know wherever you feel comfortable. All right, cool. So so I'm from South Florida. Uh, the city that I'm actually from, the town I'm called I'm from, is called Lauder Hill, Florida. So it's in the county that's north of Miami-Dade County. So I'm not in Miami. I'm in Broward County. But to make things easier for people, especially when I'm on the West Coast or anywhere else, I just tell people Miami because I'm part of the Miami metropolitan area. So I just say Miami for short. And if someone's like, oh, you're not from Miami, I'm like, actually, I am. I'm using Miami short as Miami metro area. Bro, get out of <laughs> my face. Like, <laughs> are you from there? No, you're not. You, you're from the suburbs somewhere. And that's cool. But like, dang, let me live. Yeah, I think Alex and I have that same problem being from South Jersey. Is it's just like, we're from Philly, sort of. Like, not <laughs> yeah. Really, but yeah. We're, we're, we're you, gonna, know. you know. Claim that. Man, so like we had kids at Pitt, right? So in Pitt undergrad. Excuse me. People would always say, oh, I'm from outside Philly. And one time they're like, oh, I'm from outside Philly. Where are you from, Hershey? Uh, I'm from outside uh, Philly. 
Where you from? Uh, College Park. I'm from outside Philly. Where you from? Uh, Delaware. Delaware. <laughs> Delaware. That's a little. That's a little far. I feel like there are other cities you should be referencing as your your home metro area, right? Than like, because there's at least two. Like, do Delaware and Pennsylvania share a border? I don't think so. I don't know. If if they do, it's like five feet wide. Because yeah, it can't <laughs> possibly be that big. Yeah. Yeah. Please excuse my ignorance of Northeast ge- uh, geography. That's not my expertise. So, yeah, so how do y'all want me to do it? Like, I mean, I can tell you where I'm from, how how I got here. Do you yeah, want that... me to just talk about my research? Like, what's... Let, well, I mean, I let, think, think kind of, yeah, the, the point of this is just, you know, what, what's important in your story to you? Like, what what do you think that you should be able to, to kind of share about yourself that you don't otherwise get to talk about? Exactly. Oh. Uh, <laughs> 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 All right, so... Let's let's see here. So let's talk about what do I guess how I got here, background or whatever. Let's go. So right now I'm wearing myself a little Pitt sweatshirt because Pitt is near and dear to my heart because I went there for undergrad. So people would ask me like, oh, why did you decide, you know, go to Pitt for undergrad? I was like, well, I was dating a shorty. <laughs> I thought we were going to get married. And so I followed her to Pitt. That's not, I mean, that's not. Anyone else, I tell them, oh, yeah, you know, they have a great co-op program and they have a football team. I'm lying. It's just because I was dating someone in high school and I followed her to Pitt. And when I went to Pitt, it was rough. So I come from a school that's like 45% black and I think 20-something Latinx, 20-something white, and then the rest were Asian and multiracial. And to go from that environment to like a 90% white environment was tough. Like I go in the first day of school, right? I'm sagging my pants. I'm wearing a do-rag and I'm wearing a like a, a wife beater, an undershirt to class. Mm. I mean, I feel like, you know, white girls get away with showing up in their pajamas. But I feel like you would probably <laughs> get more like side eyes. Oh, si- side eyes? <laughs> Boy. Oh, my gosh. Like. It was it was the first time I realized, like I really realized what it meant meant to be black in America. Was when I went to right Pittsburgh. Mm-hmm. You said so, like I think you got to go, you know, tend to a plumber. Oh, a pl- oh, okay. <laughs> so like, so that's the deal. So that I mean, right? I came to that situation. It was like. <laughs> it's, let's, let's just take a minute. Nah, I mean we can talk, man. Okay, yeah. Unless he does he want does he need to hear my whole origin story? Oh my gosh. Plumber's here. Uh <laughs> I'll be back in like one minute. I'm sorry. Okay. No, you good. Yeah. I'm back. Ain't nobody need you, bro. We good. So good. <laughs> yeah, when, you, when you get this audio file. <laughs> What's up? So when Alex gets this audio file to oh. like do the editing together. Oh, do the editing? Yeah. Why? Because you're going to have like like little blurs. <laughs> oh, yeah. Because he, he didn't hear any of the conversations that just happened. Oh, my God. <laughs> it's fine. It's fine. Oh, man. Oh, boy. All right. Okay. They have to fix pipes because they're leaking in my garage. Hey. But. It's all good. Uh, so, what did I miss? Uh, I guess if we're if we're going back into the the origin story, let's see. We were talking so, about getting back to the origin story. Yeah, like showing up to class in uh, some attire that may not have been quite appreciated by. Yeah, and and what was kind of crazy was 
when I went there, so even when I speak on a mic now, when I'm at school, I keep my voice higher up in the octaves. I do three things. Higher up, I raise the octaves of my voice. I hope that's the right word. Make it more higher pitch. Mm-hmm. Sure. I speak a little faster, and I also mask my accent. Mm-hmm. Because I try to be as approachable as possible. And it can be, even if it hits someone on a subconscious level, if I'm, if I speak to them with an accent or if I speak to them with slang and I speak to them with how much deeper my voice is, it makes a lot of people very uncomfortable. Mm. So like, for example, right, let's, let's say I'm talking about science and I just use my, so I'm of Jamaican descent. So when I'm back home, you both saw the accent. So I really talk like this and I speak a little slower, you know? I mean, I really pronounce things all the way. So if I'm, someone going to talk to me about research, let's see uh, this is how I go. Hello, good afternoon. My name is Chris. This is the research me for show you today. There's some little gyroscopes. Then I move like so, then like so, then like hit this so. Right? So when, you, when you're saying that to people, they no longer listen. Mm-hmm. They're listening not for the content of your words. They're listening for, oh, he's funny. He's Jamaican. <laughs> Right. And also when it comes to research, I can't I can't be respected as an academic with too strong of an accent. And not because people just want to oppress me in a conscious way, but it's just that they're like, wow, he's just fun to listen to. I don't know if he's really good at research. I've never smoked weed before because I am Jamaican. Mm-hmm. Like, what kind of question is that? When someone comes up to me, they're like, oh, you're Jamaican. Do you smoke weed? You must smoke weed. Come on, man. You must first smoke question. weed. Right? You said fair question? No, I said the first question. I was about to say, yeah. that's a fair question. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. Goopy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Put some respect on my name. Put some respect on it. <laughs> and, um, hey, Chris, do you, do you know where I can acquire some illegal drugs? It seems like a fair question to ask you. Bro. When, when people, I think, because part of it is is the specific relationship that exists between America and you know West Indies, Caribbean, like whatever you want to, um, however you would prefer to classify them. Like there's there's associations that come with that, but then there's just things that come along with being different or being other, right? And yeah. and there's a set of social norms that people adopt that you know they're, they're used that you are used to observing in society, but as soon as they're exposed to somebody that they feel like is not part of their social world in some way that like mm-hmm. a lot of things just drop, just go away completely. Yeah. That's very true. So I, I mean, I also work in a dorm on campus and one of our homework assignments that we asked the students to do was a racial bias test or excuse me, multiple bias tests. So do you associate women or men with rationality or being emotional? Do you associate, uh, are you, like certain presidents, do you like Trump as opposed to Kennedy? And it's like quick reaction time. Mm-hmm. And some people got results and they're like, holy cow, I favor white people to black people. Does that make me a racist? Yes. No, I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> yep, no. That's it. You answered tw- 10 questions. That's it. You got the label. Right. That's it. You <laughs> are racist. <laughs> racist. Get your southern accent up. No, not at all. It doesn't mean you're a racist. It just shows like that, you know, that's your your subconscious working and it may be because you just lack exposure. Mm-hmm. So even when I took the test, 
I'm sure if I took it when I was in, say, high school, I would have been more neutral. But now when I take the test, I'm a lot more, you know, I prefer black people a lot more. And I think it's because when I left high school, all of a sudden I was black. Yeah, I think in in the sense that it it becomes an active part of your identity, like, you know, like hair color or like eye color, like things like that are not at the front of your mind and it doesn't filter through your kind of reflexive simulation of, okay, what does this other person see when they see me? Yeah. Like, like if you're not used to thinking that, oh, the fact that I'm black is affecting how this person sees me, then suddenly being put into an environment where that is now affecting how people like that. I mean, I don't even know if culture shock is the right word as much as it's just like, it's like, you know, suddenly going from, from driving on smooth pavement to like trying to drive through gravel. And it's like, you know, if you can't see the road at first and you're like, I don't know why things are are changing and that can be disorienting for you. I mean, even though it's, it's not something that's changed about you, right. It's something that's different about the people you're interacting with. And I, and I think that's a great point. So I, I don't know your back. So your background, Alex, like what's what's your background like, with regards to just like what are you, G? <laughs> right. So and the reason why I use the phrase "what are you" is because that's such a common phrase that people ask to try to be like, "What that's, are you?" That, no, no, no. What like, are you? I like. I felt like I'm. Gonna, I'm not gonna lie. Like in that moment when you asked him that, like I felt kind of awkward. Yeah, I did. <laughs> I I did like, yeah, but that was like, hey, I've been asked that question before. Like, like, okay, yeah, let's see how let's see how Alex answers this. And question. that's why I had to put that caveat because I also wanted to see how did he respond to that. Is uh, he gonna say, oh, you know, what are you is an inappropriate way to ask me, or is he gonna say, oh, I am this? So I was trying to gauge where is his yeah. background by his reaction. I know of more tactful ways to say. I want to know what is your ethnicity, what is your descent, or I just say what are you, yeah, and then see how we how we react. Yeah. And, and sorry to make you like a, like a test subject here. No, I found that very interesting. Like, well, yeah, because I, I think that's the thing is it's like I, for for like me or Chris, somebody asks us like what are we? Like it's not it, like there's no ambiguity about what they're asking, right? Right? But like yeah, as white. soon as like you ask a white person or it's like what do you mean? What am I? Like there are yeah. several things that affect my. my I'm a mutt. I'm mixed with. Anyway, <laughs> yeah, I think my my wife and I took like genetic background tests. Twenty three and me. Yeah, yeah. You know yeah. why, right? What, what I was just gonna say, there's no black, only black family that I know of that took twenty three and me. Oh yeah. Was it your wife's? It was your wife's suggestion, wasn't it? Well, yeah. I mean, it was. I mean, part, well, okay, okay. What is she? Okay. Well, no. Okay. So, so there's two things. Is like one, like so. So I'm black. My family's black. But my younger brothers are both ginger, right? Like, so obviously we come from some mixed heritage that like somehow just like in the last generation or two got covered off. So like all of my grandparents and, and my parents identify as black, but there's obviously some mixed heritage in the background there. Yeah. Right. So so kind of we wanted to figure out like, you know, okay, well, what what is the background for me personally? But then she wanted to take hers because, you know, you know, obviously like in America, like whiteness is whiteness, right? And so yeah. like, you know, there is a lot of diversity that can come from that. Um and and she wanted to kind of find out what her background is. Came back ninety nine point seven percent like British Isles. Oh, really? Yeah. I was like, you are like you have just the minimum amount to not be inbred. Basically, like you you are wow. you are yeah like you are the prototypical British genome. I How know, in the like. so are where are her parents from? 
I mean, they're both from America. Like, so you're yeah. telling me <laughs> <laughs> your shorty is like Salem witch Charles, Plymouth Rock shorty. Maybe it was like it was like also just like you know northern northern European, but there. Oh, was, yeah, okay, yeah, okay. Yeah. I thought you were saying like everybody was from. England, Scotland, no, Ireland. It, it was, I think it was like two thirds, like England, Scotland, Ireland, and then like miscellaneous, like Northern Germany and Scandinavia. Yeah. I, also, I think he was just saying that Ashley is a witch. Um, yeah. You know, just, yeah, just putting it out my there. My wife has actually been involved in a secret eugenics project to oh. preserve the bloodline. And, what? Uh, yeah. yeah, she's she's related about, to Voldemort. About to get, get outed. Yeah. You about to get a get outed? Yeah. <laughs> get out. You wouldn't have gotten married, bro. Marriage is not a get out situation. Yeah. If she was just your girlfriend and she's like, do you want to come to my parents' place? <laughs> my mom marched in the women's march because, but she didn't vote because, you know, she felt like she was against the whole process, but was so upset when Donald Trump won. And you're like, but you live in Pennsylvania. You live in Michigan. You live in Wisconsin. You live in Florida. You could have. Anyways, Alice, what were you saying? <laughs> <laughs> For this train gets too far off track. Let's cool. return to the question, Alex. What are you? Uh, you know. <laughs> um, I don't know my background. I'm. I think I'm partially Austrian. I know I'm partially Welsh, and I don't know outside of those two for certain. Um, I don't think I'm Irish, even though I have like tons of freckles. Um. But like, I I don't know. I haven't done twenty three and Me. It's never been something that like I thought that I would benefit from. I I didn't. I don't know. It, it wasn't something because I don't know a lot of my family. I know we came over to America really early, but outside of that, it's like uh, how early are we talking? Like nineteen eighty. Oh, I think it was. I want to oh, say 1700s, it might be 1800s, but I mean, it's oh, okay. pretty early. Like, yeah, If you said like 16, I was going to be like, Jesus. Yeah, no, no, I don't think I don't think that's true. But like, you know, it'd be even better if you said 1100. I'd have been like, what? <laughs> <laughs> so you're native. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just been, just been, I didn't mention that part. Oh, I didn't, I didn't realize my co-host was Elizabeth Warren. Oh, <laughs> yo, look. <laughs> Bro. Oh. Here's, here's what I'm going to say about all that, G. As a person of color who every who has to experience, especially in California, this place is extremely racist. <laughs> this place is extremely racist. And let me tell you how. I do a lot of recruiting. I have a lot of diversity students from other schools who I interact with who want to go to Stanford. And I'm like, cool. That's what's up. And they'll come to visit. And they'll say, hey, uh, I'm interested in Stanford, blah, 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 blah. What, what can you tell me about the diversity? And I tell them a couple of things. It depends on where they are in the application process. But definitely if they get in, I got to be candid with them. So let me start with Latinx people as an example. I tell them if you pay attention to the demographics of Stanford and you look at the Latinx people, so the people who check Hispanic, Latino, mm. Chicano, whatever, origin, the people who attend the school, for the most part, there are exceptions, right? Because most of the black people who get here are upper middle class, and I'm low income. 
So when it comes to them, they most of them are light skin and white passing. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, I, I I'm not as involved in in uh, understanding the picture of diversity on campus, um, but that's certainly I I forget who I was talking to about that that recently, but it's just. There are certainly diversity initiatives that exist on campus, um, but for for the most part, it is um, oh because this was somebody somebody looked at like it wasn't it wasn't Stanford but somebody was looking at the the demographics of Harvard's undergraduates. Um, oh, because, because of, the, of the trial that's going yeah, on because, because yeah. of the the, the um, affirmative action case that's going forward, um, and basically looked at yeah like like Harvard has. I guess what you would call like magazine cover diversity, um, in, the, in the sense that like, if you took a such an accurate term, yeah, yeah, like on the surface, you know, the, the population looks diverse, but I think they said that, you know, like the the I want to I want to get this right, the the majority of black students at, at Harvard in, in undergrad were either recent, like recent immigrants or were of mixed heritage, um, but still, you know, by American standards enough to, to claim uh, African-American ancestry. There, there was a vanishingly small number who had all four grandparents were, you know, would have identified as African-American in America. Um, and the, the distribution of those who came from like upper middle class, like top quartile of in- income or something like that, was like, you know, ninety percent of of the the undergrads at Harvard were were of that, and and the profile here is not not really different. I mean, <clears throat> I think we've talked on on this podcast for about the the disconnect between graduate experiences versus undergrad experiences, and and you know how that that breaks down. But um, I think um, to to. I wouldn't even call it like a conscious and certainly like a like a conspiratorial, but the degree to which the incentives for diversity um, in a lot of institutional contexts are satisfied by that kind of magazine cover diversity, just surface level diversity, and then you know once that's fine, like okay, there's no need to push this any any deeper. Mm-hmm. Um, that's that's definitely a factor uh, in the way things have played out here, and so. I, I wouldn't be surprised to look at the data and, and see similar patterns in, in Stanford's demographics. I mean, I'd be surprised yeah. to see if the pattern wasn't there. Like, I would be surprised if it if it they it was different. Like, it just doesn't. It's not how they do it. Like for, you know, just whatever reason, they it's not how they have done it. And isn't it? Um, is it UC schools don't take race into account at all with acceptance is that what it is i so i'm i'm not familiar chris you might know this better than i do but um oh right yeah because because there there's a law on the the book because I, I was after i was looking into the the affirmative action case i went to look at like the history of affirmative action and california was actually like the first state in the union to to basically strike down affirmative action because we're no. so liberal and open-minded <laughs> and we're not racist at all i'm just gonna walk around with my dog without a leash completely ignoring the fact that a lot of people from low-income neighborhoods when they see dogs without a leash that dog is gonna attack them you all should be ashamed that you're not vegetarian or vegan you should really care about the environment not knowing that huh maybe when people grow up in low-income communities they don't even have access to these kinds of resources to be vegan. Oh my goodness, who would have thought? And you brought up a great point. Most of the black people who make it to the highest levels of the academic realm 
are not African American. Mm-hmm. I'm of Jamaican descent. I am one of those people who fits in that category of not fully African American. I was born in this country, but I was raised in a Jamaican neighborhood to Jamaican parents, to Jamaican grandparents. I'm so Jamaican that there was a fast food Jamaican restaurant down the street from my house. Is it good? Let's... <laughs> <laughs> Al, Al Todd's coming through with the real question. <laughs> is it good though? <laughs> you know, it's it's okay. Dutch pot is okay. It's not it's not the best Jamaican. Like especially when you could go to like Charlie's or Auntie's. If you really want that's that's my experience. And so I remember when I went to Pittsburgh for the first time and I met African Americans. I didn't grow up meeting African Americans, like slave descendants, like American slave descendants. The way they look at life is is different. My family, we come to, they came to this country and they and they tell me every day, we walked uphill both ways, barefoot in the snow. Like you, y'all are from Jamaica. What a snow was, <laughs> and then you get slapped in the face with a shoe because you can't talk back. And you have a lot of these kids who grow up being told by their parents, or being told by the system, or being told by television that you're African American, you belong in jail, you should be playing basketball, you should be playing football, and you should rap. As a foreign black descendant. They told me I needed to be a doctor and go to Harvard. And that was it. That's what my grandparents told me. My mom was like, you know what, Chris? If Just be happy. Graduate high school. But that's what I grew up in, where the expectations were, you're not in America to be oppressed. You're in America to achieve more than we ever could in our home country. And that's... Part of the reason why we're able to make it through because so many of these poor kids who grow up here who are descendants of slaves, they're never told that they could be anything. And so when it comes to colleges, college admissions, yes, most of the black people, they're African, most likely Nigerian, Caribbean descent, or high income. If you could find me a low-income African-American where both parents are slave descendants from America? I'm not going to tell you I pay you money cuz you could find them, but they're very few and far between. So, yeah, so I think I think th- there is a, a strong disconnect between sort of California in particular like Silicon Valley and Palo Alto and Stanford very much as a nexus, like mm-hmm. the the image that they both have of themselves and project into the world versus the, like the the actual sort of reality of sort of being on the ground in that sense. Mm-hmm. And it's like, if you look at like the law, lo- the long history, um, like you point out like, like California, it, you know, especially now in, in, um, in it's like legal contestations with Donald Trump and his administration, California has become like the bastion of liberalism in the United States. And of course, one of the, one of the, the elements of that is, is gun control, right? Like that's, that's mm-hmm. a, you know, go die on a hill, um, issue in California, <laughs> but let's, I mean, let's get into like, why does California have the strongest gun control laws in the country? I don't um, know actually. Why? So, so, okay. So this, this is going to be a fun story to tell <laughs> because back in the late eighties, um, while Ronald Reagan was governor, there were concerns 
that California police officers, local, state, whoever, um, were harassing, uh, injuring, and uh, occasionally possibly even killing just kids, um, you know, for, for acting out of line, for, you know, obviously no no good reason. Was there a racial component to these Oh, kids? yeah, because the people that decided that they were going to do something about it were the Black Panthers. And oh, so, chill. so the Black Panthers started carrying, you know, in the same way we now see in Texas, like open carrying assault rifles. And, you know, saying, we're like, this is not an active maneuver. We're just going to be here on the corner, you know, watching these kids go to school. And if anything should happen, then, you know, we're going to exercise our Second Amendment right to protect, you know, ourselves and, and whatnot from, <laughs> from forcible, you know, government oppression. And Ronald Reagan and the NRA decided, no, that's that's not what the Second Amendment is for. Did the, wait, the NRA was involved with oh, this? Yeah. Oh, yeah. What? Yeah, the, the NRA and, and Ronald Reagan got on board and said, no, the Second Amendment is not for this isn't what it's for. I mean, you can't say what it's for because, of course, especially today, their, their shtick is that, you know, the the Second Amendment is for, you know, individual freedom to protect themselves against government tyranny. But, you know, when you have an oppressed group of people who are feeling physically threatened by agents of their government who decide to just take up arms just to deter, you know, <laughs> possible harassment and assault from police and, and state agents. All of a sudden, that that's not what the Second Amendment is for. That's not what it means. It's not what conservatism, it's not what bringing in, it's not what the NRA stands for. Wow. And so California <laughs> adopts the strongest, gu- you know, gun control laws in the country. And I think that, that that's kind of the... The playbook is essentially like we, we, we can trumpet liberalism and liberal values as long as we get to control the, the environment, right? And I mean, mm-hmm. you see this manifesting, to, I mean, just, you know, people blame the housing crisis on, on NIMBYism and, and just this idea that, you know, we're here um, and, and Please we're excuse my ignorance. What's NIMBYism? Uh, not in my backyardism. Basically just the, the idea that. You know, the people who are here, like regardless of the fact that there might be, you know, another 10 million people who could come and live and work in the Bay Area. Right. Right. Um, who who would, you know, be very welcome additions, you know, economically, culturally, in, in whatever way. You know, there's people who are here and, you know, they have a a right to, you know, decide the, the playing field and say like and kind of shape their environment around them. And so Stanford is is. And and Palo Alto and, and Silicon Valley more broadly are very much places where we like to trumpet the idea that you know we're we're a bastion of of liberal values, but also exert strong control over essentially who's allowed to be in certain places, you know, by by you know either just cultural or economic forces, and just kind of say that oh yeah you know we're 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 open to 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 so many things but then when you start to encroach on the actual places that people work and live around this area the the economic and cultural barriers that you run into of of people just saying that okay like i like there there was this this story recently of of like low income housing where the the um the landlords built a gym um into the building why um well, you know, I mean, to, to as an amenity, but then said that the people who were in the building, but were there, at, you know, under like subsidized low income housing tenants, they mm-hmm. weren't allowed to use the gym. Bruh. 
like they they couldn't they couldn't pay for it like they couldn't you know pay for it on top of their their rent or whatnot just flatly if you're here as a low-income tenant you are not allowed in this space bruh look (laughs) oh my goodness let me get on see i don't know if this was what you were looking for alex (laughs) i don't know if this is what you were expecting but i'm gonna tell you this i may be a phd student i'm in mechanical engineering my advisor's amazing like People would say amongst like a couple of the engineering students of color, we call him Engineering Jesus. <laughs> right? Can who is it? Uh, Tom Kenny. Oh, Tom Kenny's awesome. See, yeah, Engineer Jesus. <laughs> He's amazing. I'm Bro, so blessed. I, I met this man at a crawfish boil. Yeah. <laughs> you met him at a crawfish boil. Yeah, the, the first time I met him, he couldn't shake my hand because he was like licking his fingers off of like the the spices and everything. Mm-hmm. And like he was just giving me this look, like you know what it is. Like don't. <laughs> you know what it is. You know what it is. It's your boy. <laughs> Yo, T Kenny out here getting his crawfish. You know what I'm saying? We eating this stuff. His finger looking good, boy. They call me White Jesus out here. The colored kids love me. <laughs> so yeah right i and i do work that i do find interesting i do like what i do and hopefully one day i could be a professor but one of the things that really is personal to me is not just the research but the social impact of my life the social impact of the things that i can do the things that i can say the things that i would be there were four people if I remember correctly, there were four black kids in my cohort. Five. When I came in. I think out of like hundred something kids who got in, four black kids. And only two of us are left. Mm-hmm. And that means let, let me not even say how that's disheartening. But that means that the amount of black student PhDs from Stanford. One of the best schools in the world is really, really small. So I have the ability to change perceptions, to have a platform, to have a microphone. (laughs) (laughs) I got jokes, right? To hopefully spark some sort of change. And one of the things that I'm wrestling with is what do I do next to have the most social impact that is the most rewarding to me? Mm -hmm. So, Alex, what I've also noticed is that frequently people who are white American passing don't typically get a chance to voice themselves on race issues. So I would love to hear your opinion, your thoughts, and I would also like to hear some of the things that you've gone through based on the color of your skin that have not been ideal at Stanford. Because I know y'all also get some stuff as well. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. As for the things for the color of my skin uh, at Stanford, I don't think that's been, uh, for me, anything. And I think a lot of the reason I haven't been contributing... Interject? Yeah. Can you say the N-word in public? No. Can you say anything against Me Too in front of women? Uh, Oh, God. Sorry, plumber. (laughs) And that's how you get out of a question. (laughs) I would do that now. <laughs> My advice is gonna be like, Chris, did you do anything this week? Uh, 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 plumber. <laughs> <laughs>
Screech, clang, bang, bang, plumbing noises, plumbing noises. Oh, sorry, I, I didn't notice you there. I'm just doing some plumbing here in Alex Hobbs' plumbing corner, and, uh, well, you know what, now that you're here, why don't we, why don't we clear off a, a few things off of the agenda for this episode? First of all, thank you so much to Chris Cameron for appearing on the show. This was our first episode that we've done somewhat, you know, over Skype and stuff. And I think it went really well. I think the audio turned out super, super nice. And, you know, we'll make some adjustments to, to try and up, up it a little bit next time. But I, I was really pleased with how it turned out. Thank you to Andy G. Cohen for his music. The song Just a Blip off the album Through the Lens and his song Scramby Eggs off the album Layers are both used and edited in parts of this podcast. If you are interested in finding them, you can find them on our website, thefarmcast.com, or in the description of this podcast, uh, as well as on the free music archives. You can follow us, if you want to, on Facebook and Twitter at The Farmcast. We would really appreciate it if you told people about our podcast or if you reached out and shared it with other other individuals. We'd really appreciate that. Uh, we don't really advertise for it in any way. So if you enjoy it and enjoy the listening today, um, we'd really appreciate it if you shared it. You can also find us on thefarmcast.com if you prefer to you know, listen or find things out about us via the web. It's an alternative. This is our first episode in a while. So as you may have noticed, I don't want to make any commitments right now as to how often the episodes will be released from here on out. I, I think the goal for me and Jordan is, you know, one, between one and two a month. Uh, but we're obviously both busy individuals. And now I'm in a different location than him. So the days that are ideal for recording are not super common. So what we are trying to do is work around those days as well as with our guests but that's obviously not an easy thing to do and finding time to edit it and all these other things is is you know a time-consuming endeavor that we 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 need to be able to find time for so bear with us um it it probably won't be a very strict schedule moving forward but we're going to do our best to get episodes out to you guys regularly yeah i think that's everything uh, I mean, other than fixing up these these terrible leaking pipes, screech, uh, clank, clank, bang, boom. Oh no, that's not good. Uh, I'll, I'll talk to you guys soon. Oh, I gotta fix these pipes. Bye. Oh, and thanks again for listening. Bye. Water everywhere. see where i was going with that right yeah is is this just like your identity can you know e- even if you're nominally like the 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 oppressor identity like there are things that have been carved out you know you cannot come here you cannot enter this intellectual like cultural space like that you, that's just not allowed for you yeah but, and i and i think that's completely unacceptable because as a woman you should be able to be the leading voice in what it's like to walk late at night in fear for being raped. I agree, a hundred and a hundred percent. I'm, you know, I do engineer. I ain't no hundred and ten percent here. Watch me like mess up and say hundred ten percent in the future. I like that phrase. But at the same time, if we close out, if we just completely ignore the voices of men on the side of this too. 
then we don't get a full picture. Because at the end of the day, the people who make the legislation are mainly white males. And you want to have them in on the conversation as well. Not to be, not to overly consume what women want to say, but them in the conversation as well. So that way we can get more change. Yeah, so you don't you don't show up at Capitol Hill and all of a sudden have to talk to the kind of people that you've never talked to this issue before and you don't understand what their concerns or interests are. Like even if you think that, you know, their concerns are in like even if just personally, let alone, you know, going into I guess like negotiations or talking about this, if you don't even understand the person that's on the other side of the table, I mean you you can approach this by saying, okay, well, we'll just vote him out until we put somebody in there who's going to be sympathetic to us. Yes. Right. But if, if you can't just sit down and say, I understand that this is not a pressing issue for your life and that, you know, maybe you don't directly empathize with us, but let's, let's have a conversation here yes, and, and not say that your opinion and, and your voice in this issue is completely irrelevant and i feel the same thing with racial issues too as a black identifying individual who as soon as i walk into a room you know i'm black i wish more white people were given the chance to be allies Mm -hmm. not the people spearheading the movement but to be allies i mean that's the, the the thing like i've been spending weeks like trying to wrap my head just around these affirmative action cases um, because this is, I, I mean, the, this particular case that's going, I, I don't think it's quite to the Supreme Court yet, but but people are kind of expecting it to get there. Mm-hmm. Um, this is actually the, the second attempt by this um, this conservative activist, Edward Bloom, to, to basically try and overturn affirmative action at the Supreme Court level. And he's hiding behind Asian Americans. Yeah, I mean, that, that's the, is, is he, he started with, this this girl down in Texas um, who didn't get into University of Texas and, and she sued and she didn't even have the credentials that UT looked for in order to accept her into the program. Yeah, but I mean, I, I, essentially, he came in. and He did a number of just interviews, kind of talking about. It. And essentially, what he he realized was just that he he was trying to play a PR game. Um, is that what it is? Well, I mean, it, it's you know he he's trying to essentially drum up public and political support to say that, okay, affirmative action isn't fair, right? And it's, it's weird because kind of the, the definition, especially on, at least on paper, like the, the definition of discrimination is to, to be basing your decisions on, you know, who you're going to employ, who you're going to admit into college um, or not, you know, based on their race, right? That, and, and we kind of, when we're talking about bigotry, we interpret that to mean that you're you're prohibiting certain races or restricting certain races from entering into you know an employment opportunity, college opportunity, whatever. But then, the way affirmative action is is written and the way that it's it's exercised is that the the point of it is that you're making these decisions based on race, right? That you're yeah. looking at somebody and and making this decision and saying. Like because of your race, that like we want you to come here, right? Because of your background, we want you to come here. And so on on paper, just just you know, the the ex- extant rule that what college rule? is extant, like like just existing and being in in the space that like that. I like the vocabulary word <laughs> that that colleges can use 
race as a as a factor in admissions, right? If this was 1914, you know, 1940, like you would expect that that rule to be a justification for keeping black people uh, oh. Latino, right? But in in 1990 and in 2000, 2010, like that that rule is is used in the, in the other way, right? Yeah. And so the the that like that's what what I'm trying to to kind of wrap my my head around, right? Is that we have this rule, which on paper to me, like I'll, I'll say on paper to me, like the way affirmative action is written, like it seems discriminatory, right? Mm-hmm. But the the point is that like the rule and and the cultural context that that it exists in are just not separate, right? And that like. A, a rule as it's written and exists in 2018 is is different from that same rule existing in 1840 or something like that, right? Agreed. So, so Alex, you're back. Yeah. You're back. Man, you chose a, such an inconvenient time. <laughs> you did. I did, yeah. Right. So let's, let's, let's go back to what we were saying. You were saying that you as a white man, you're like, oh, you know, I don't really feel like I – feel like I'm oppressed in any way. And then my first thing was, you know, can you say the N-word in front of a black people? And by N-word, I don't mean ninja. <laughs> right. Oh, right. So you can't. Yeah. So no. now that I know. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I need to stop. So right, there's that. And then the next thing would be, could you say in front of a group of women on campus that you support Brett Kavanaugh for the Supreme Court? I mean... <sighs> I mean, you you might, but I'll I'll tell you there was there was a new news story in the Stanford Daily. Um, the college Republicans went out and did that, and uh, it ended up in a battery charge. Jeez. Oh, oh my God. was it a double A or triple A? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, in reading the article, it seemed kind of petty, but certainly, I mean, AAA. a couple of people sat down in in White Plaza and you know staked out that they supported Brett Kavanaugh and they didn't um, believe. Christine Blasey Ford. I, I mean, maybe I'm putting words in their mouth, but but the gist of it was that they they laid out this like you know change my mind that Brett Kavanaugh you know should be on the Supreme Court or whatever, and it got at least to a degree physical. Like it, it just could not stay within like a you know just just discussion, right? All right. So okay. So I still want to hear your answer. Though, yeah, to sure. The, question. I, the re the reason I kind of paused was that my thought was. You like I fit like physically, yeah, I can go out and do that, but it's it's so it seems so antagonistic and and awful and and in so many different ways that you can go and and say things that that will genuinely upset people and bring them to a point where it, you know you you don't you know you you you've said something that upset them and then you 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 know it's it's. I don't know. It, it's it's. But you're right. No, I can't go out and and say these things. I can't go out and do these things on campus or or, you know, in in really any 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 public setting like that. No, and you know when I was so here, here's what I'm here's another thing I want to add on to to what man this the spice got me sweating. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I love curry goat. Good lord, I love Jamaican food. So. What else I wanted to say was, um, you 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 said that you didn't want to say anything that intentionally antagonized people, but what about the thought is, 
What if that's what you believed? Right? Why should that intentionally antagonize someone? It's not your intention. So uh, here's an, here's another example. The way I grew up in the area that I grew up in, there are things that are normal that would be completely unacceptable here. And I'm not doing or saying these things. Well, now I'm completely, I filter whatever I say or do, knowing the situation that at the end of the day, I have to graduate from here with my PhD and I need enough people to like me that way. It helps for networking in the future that way. When my kids want to go to med school and my friend who I met in grad school is a dean at Harvard, they can help them get in. Right, I understand I have to play the game. But there are some thoughts that I have that are against the common thought on campus. And why is it antagonizing the people? And that right there is a form of oppression. I cannot express different ideals than the group. I can, I mean, excuse me, I can say these things, but there are professional ramifications and social ramifications that could reverberate throughout the rest of my career if I were to go against those things. And you as a white American passing male, if you said the N-word one time because you were singing a song in the shower and the right, the wrong, excuse me, the right or wrong, and certain black Americans who are here heard that, you would be branded as a racist for the rest of your life. Yeah. I mean, that seems true. Um, like, there's a there's a kind of deep point here that, like, even even beyond just, like, culture and identity politics, like, there's there's issues, like, I mean, obviously, this, this is, you know, very much a center of, of, like, technological development. And one thing, I mean, I'll just come out and say one thing that gets under my skin is... Mm. There's there's this company Palantir, right? That What's exists. That? So so it sounds like paint. Well, so so the so the, the Palantir itself is. Um, did you ever see Lord of the Rings? Yeah. Yeah. So you remember that that Ooh. eye that's like the the orb that like Sauron uses. Like if you touch it, then like Sauron can see through the orb and like use it to to spy on. The, the party, right? Like one of the <laughs> hobbits grabs it and like Gandalf freaks out. Sounds like something they would use in Cheaters. Tonight on Cheaters. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, I mean like so there's this company and what they do is they help the NSA and whoever else to build spy software essentially. Okay. Um, and for me that's that like – I mean I was, like – yeah, my background, like I used to build nuclear weapons and I've had conversations with people who what? think that that like I'm the devil That's for that. Lit. <laughs> <laughs> and like and and you know, people had but at the same time, like I like I like it's a company that employs a lot of people here that is aspirational to work at because they do a lot of, you know, hard technical work. Mm-hmm. But whenever I see like somebody wearing a Palantir shirt, right? Like, to me, like, that shirt says, like, I don't give a fuck about your rights, right? Like, I don't care whether or not my technology is going to be used to violate your sense of dignity and privacy. Mm-hmm. But, like, I'm not going to say that to somebody, right? Because, mm-hmm. because like, the there's, you know, part of the, the whether you want to call it the libertarian ideal here or is just that, you know, technology is not evil and, and, you know, 
people are evil people are evil and you know if you just build technology it's up to the people who use it to do the right thing i'm like yeah but it's also up to you as a human to not build technology like knowing that the customer that's going to use it is you know what i mean like you don't build a hacksaw for jason Voorhees. like even if right. you're yeah like you build it for a surgeon sure but when when you know the company that you're building the hacksaws for is selling them to freddy krueger and jason Voorhees, maybe that's not you know the brand you want to put on your chest and walk around campus but like like that I have to accept, right? Like that I have to accept that that expression that, you know, somebody can express those values. And I appreciate that you accept it, yeah. right? At the end of the day, you don't agree with it, but you accept it. Yeah. Like I said, I don't agree with dogs walking around without leashes. That brings a fear in my heart. But on campus, it's okay. Because it's filled with upper middle class, liberal white people who have the funds to train their dogs to do well without a leash. I'm quite impressed when Fido be doing what he need to do. <laughs> but when I walk into a class and this is your support animal and it's barking and it's walking around the classroom and all the uh, kids are like, oh my God, it's so cute. I mean, God. And I'm sitting here freaking out and I can't focus in class. That is unacceptable. But I can't say, excuse me, do you mind getting your dog out of here? Because the prevailing thing is, no, this is her support animal so it can stay in class. Mm -hmm. What about me? What about how I feel? What about my rights? And and I love the fact that you don't make that extra effort to be like, yo, man, you do understand that you're supporting a company that's going to be spying on everyone. Good. Keep your mouth shut. I appreciate that. Right? Just like... If I wear a Google shirt and you come up to me and you say, I'm selling my soul because I don't want to be a professor. There are many things that I would say that I just wouldn't want this recorded. <laughs> right? Yeah, sure. Because I tell people this. I was like, um, I would love to be a professor. I really would love to have that job. That was the goal for years. That still is the goal. But... If I'm staring at $45,000 for a postdoc, well, Chris, it's actually 55000 if you include benefits. No, 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 I don't care. If it's 55, 45, 60, same difference. Well, that's not the same difference. Uh, look, look. And I'm staring that down versus 200000 package starting package at Google. Why are people who are atheists going to tell a super religious person that I'm selling my soul? Why? Why do you have to make why do you have to tell me that? Like it's something that I choose to do. And on top of that, um, sadly for me, there was a time where my mom, my brother, and I were sharing a bed in my grandparents' house after my dad was killed. So I did not grow up with the kind of money to where I could say, you know what, forty five thousand dollars a year at the age of thirty is okay for me. Because when I make get this PhD and I watch as my cousin got shot in the head last weekend, and I watch as my family can't even afford to go to community college, and I watch as my brother doesn't go to school because he can't afford it, and I watch as people are being crushed by their bills, and I watch as I'm going to be the one who gets a college degree, They don't. the school is so good they don't even know what it is. I am not going to hear from you when your parents are lawyers or doctors or whatever they are to tell me that I'm selling my soul because I choose a job that can put my brother through college, pay off my mom's house, cover my grandparents' medical bills, 
give my cousin another place to sleep, help give my other cousin therapy because his sister got shot. Like, how are you going to tell me I'm selling my soul when I'm doing the most beneficial thing that's there for my family? So I appreciate you not saying anything to them. But at the same token, like, what is it with everyone so willing to oppress everyone else because they're not with the group thing? No, I, I think basically you summed up something similar to basically what I was about to say, which was, you know, you you see someone wearing a shirt of a company or or you see someone, you know, working for a company that, that does things that you don't agree with. They need a job. You know, you could tell them, oh, go get work somewhere else. Oh, go do something else. But it. They, they need a job, and they are currently working there. Maybe they won't work there in the future. Maybe they don't agree with everything that company is doing. But they they need a job. Yeah, I mean, I think, like, we I've touched on earlier, like, the disconnect somewhat between, like, graduate and undergraduate experiences here. Mm-hmm. And, and this is somebody told me a stat that, like, still blows my mind every time I think about it. Is okay. that, like... 70% of Stanford undergraduates pay full price. Time out. <laughs> now, what's the rule again to to have financial aid? What's the income rule? I, th- I think that uh, here, if, if your parents make less than like 120000 it's completely free. Okay. Combined, is it? or? Yeah. But yeah. yeah if, if your family, like, that's that's still like top like 10% income in the country, right? So if you're, if you're in the bottom 90% I think that's income. considered upper class. Yeah, I it, think 122 is the is the yeah. uh, boundary. But essentially, yeah. If, if you're like class. bottom 90 percent in this country, then like Stanford is completely free, right? And then it's like it's like a graduating scale after that, right? So 70 percent of Stanford's undergrads are so far above the 90 percentile mark that they get no financial aid reimbursement, whatever. They're just paying straight full out of price, right? And so like just the value set that comes out of that, like some, like just the assumptive value set, like drives me up. Like I was, I took an, an undergrad CS class. Um, what would uh, you take? Uh, 106B. It's like abstractions in computer programming. Yeah, I'm in A right now. I'm going to take B next quarter. Cause... Okay. So, so, so one of the things that drove me nuts was like, okay, so I'm, I'm a grad student. I have things that I can be doing during my working day other than being in class, especially when that class is recorded and I can watch it later, get up on the material, like... Big and facts. Take care of my responsibilities, but one of the 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 instructor, like in the lead up to midterms, you know, said, "I'm going to start giving out hints to the midterms and not record that part of the lecture, right?" And then, like, you know, so as an incentive to come to class, I'm like, I get it that you know the the assumptive identity at Stanford is uh, a kid who's who's got everything that they need, all the support that they need to to come to class. And so the only reason you're not coming to class is because you're lazy. Right? <laughs> it's not that you've got other responsibilities or other things that you could be doing, or that you know classes are ultimately supposed to be about training you for your benefit, and you should be able to be able to take advantage of them however you want. Right? This is that this is supposed to be a training program that you're going through, and and that if you're not coming to class, it's just because you know you're a lazy slacker and whatnot. And and so I'm like, but this is like for no reason other than than what? Like the, the class is this this four hundred person class isn't full enough for you. Like you wanna like try and disadvantage people who like maybe have other responsibilities or whatever that they need to take care of instead of coming to class at, at nine AM or whatever that 
they've got other things they could take care of. And just the 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 present like the i the fact that handing out extra advantages to people who already have the structure behind them to be able to, to go to class yeah, to, every to go day to class every day and take care of that i'm like what are we doing here like like how like and 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 it's like it took me a while to really like oh right because this is stanford and because like i, like, <laughs> I went to like uh. i went to community colleges and then i went to to state school where like if somebody wasn't in class, it was probably because they had a job and they, yeah. you know, they had to, mm-hmm. they had to go to work and like, you know, school for them was about getting to where, you know, where their family was not. And I don't know, to, to kind of come here and see repeatedly just examples of catering towards people who are already set up, like, and not even, not even in what, like this, this one just got under my skin because it was like, not even in a way that like, it cost you nothing, right? Like you, you're just handing out extra benefits to people who've already got it, like, you know, got their life set up and, and are not striving to do something more. And why? Because it doesn't even occur to you that, that there's somebody in your class who's struggling, right? That there's somebody in your class for whom like this is like this has taken everything that they've got and that they've got other things that they've got to take care of. Yeah. And that like, that's just, that is what I think at, at kind of like, like if I had a bone to pick with the culture here, it's just that you have an assumptive identity of who a student is. Right. And any behavior that deviates that, any opinion that deviates from that, any presentation that deviates from that, like there's gotta be an explanation, right? Like, if you're black in here, well then, okay, well you're here either, you know, as diversity or like, <laughs> and it's like, even like, like, like even immigrants, like from not like, I guess like traditionally, um, or, or underrepresented backgrounds here, like Chinese tourists and Chinese immigrants here get it so bad. Like in terms of just like, Oh, you know, you see a Chinese person on campus. And I've heard people just like, like okay, well, I just assume he's he's rich, right? And he's here on either a government scholarship or, or his parents are paying for it, whatever. And like, you know, just just don't worry about him. Like, if he's struggling in class, that's his fault because he, he's not taking advantage of his opportunity, right? Welcome to the farmhouse. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we're getting heavy this episode. Yeah. Oh, my fault. I mean, yeah. we could. I mean, I, <laughs> I got jokes written written down. <laughs> I could have kept it. So you, why did the chicken cross see, the road? Season two. It's like season one ended. <laughs> head is off like it's real now <laughs> oh yeah his head is off bro don't tell people you could have ruined it man oh yes people, spoilers bro I'll that was like out. eight years ago like <laughs> oh my gosh look g it's a yeah i didn't mean to take this heavy i didn't want it i wanted i didn't want it to get deep <laughs> but <laughs> but the thing is g it, it, it just naturally got there i guess because these are the types of things that people don't talk about often and these are the type of things that that are actually that are really important to me right I'm, I'm glad i'm a guest on your show and these are the things that that affect me and in the future i want it so that way it's easier for everybody not just easier for somebody right uh, as a question you know as a sort of follow-up to that the problems are hard and the the solutions are also hard what you know steps do you think can be taken to improve things and 
do you think they're feasible in a reasonable amount of time? Do you think that they're feasible now and we're just all being dumb idiots who are <laughs> don't know what we're doing? Like, what what do you think can actually change and, and what, what do you think you can help change? Boy, I love the fact that you asked this question because a lot of the times when people whine about this stuff, they don't think about solutions. Mm. I don't have all the answers, but I will suggest a couple of ideas that I have that I think would be very helpful for the university as a whole that would make it even better than it already is. Because I would not change a thing when it comes to the school I chose to go to. Sure. Even when I first got here and none of the white kids worked with me and I was crying when I would go into class because every class is made to work in teams. And people aren't racist. They just work in groups without people of color. And that it took me my second quarter to finally have people work with me because they were co-terms who were of color. And then finally, my third quarter, I had people work with me because they were the same co-terms I met the quarter before. But here's one thing that we could do. And this this is kind of, this is independent of race. And it is, I wish we had more therapists available at, at the school. Because... I'm not someone who struggles with mental issues, but I have learned from a lot of my friends who never had therapists growing up, who started seeing one here, that therapists can be very useful. And a lot of kids have a lot of problems here, and they have a lot of mental struggles here, and it's hard for them to unpack it. And a lot of kids, when you make it to this level, they're not necessarily the most socially adept. So they have trouble processing it. They have trouble communicating if there were more therapists here to help more people, and if we had the the ability to, right, I don't know. Like, we could point out the endowment all we want. But at the end of the day, I don't know how much money they can spend on therapists. But if there were more therapists here to help all kids and not just have a kid meet them three times and then send them on their way, that would be lovely. That would be beautiful. Because then now... People can get past some of the roadblocks that they face in their mind to then be able to free their mind up for more open-mindedness and exposing themselves to things that may be able to help everyone, right? So that's one on the therapist part. Two would be put your time where your mouth is, not just your money. So I also work in VPGE. And I work with the diversity initiatives through VPGE. So I keep tabs on who does what in each school. And I was asked to go through the resources for diversity all throughout the schools. So School of Education, School of Business, Medicine, Humanities and Sciences, Engineering, stuff like that. The group with the one of the strongest cohorts in terms of people of color is the School of Medicine. And I was like, oh, that's pretty cool. That's interesting. How many resources do they have? Bruh. If you go through, School of Medicine had arguably the largest amount of resources for students of color. And not just programs, but manpower or woman power or Z power, superpowers, <laughs> just power, right? People whose job it is to recruit 
whose job it is to facilitate these programs, whose job it is to create an environment that is more comfortable for students of color or students that are underrepresented. underrepresented. And if every school took that kind of initiative or had that kind of money to do it, I don't know what the, the problem is, then a lot more schools at Stanford would be well-equipped. Now, if you look at the School of Humanities and Sciences and you look at their resources, barren, barren wasteland. And it shows in their faculty. It shows in their students in each of their humanities and sciences. And most importantly, they also are the most liberal. Funny. Because I think, I think when, you, when you're kind of home like you you arrive at stanford and you discover oh it's already a liberal bastion like okay well we don't need to do anymore like we're already the most liberal people in the world like obviously like there's there's nothing we could be doing better because we're not racist yeah we're not sexist we're not homophobic because i tell you what they're all for women's rights in practice and at school but as soon as women go out and try to get jobs in the tech workforce nothing 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 and that blows my mind and it's and it's such a shock because I you know when you when you have female friends who are given a lot more social flexibility at Stanford, and then they go out into the real world and try to get these tech jobs, and it's just terrible for them. So some get jobs, some a lot don't, and how they're treated as like the handful of women that are in it. But anyways, so therapists. Two, hire more staff and administrators who are dedicated to diversity initiatives. And when I mean diversity, I just mean time and energy for people who are not upper class students who have parents who are both highly educated, parents who are both financially very well equipped. And this also includes low income whites because I tell you what. Low-income whites have a tough time here, too, when they first get here. And no one's no one's even thinking about them. And then that's when people come in like, oh, but they have white privilege, blah, blah, blah. Yes, maybe if I get pulled over with, in, by a cop, I'll probably get shot and my friend won't. But who cares about them? And who cares about like the white kids who are in the middle who aren't fully liberal? who have these other questions that they want to ask, who want to get involved with racial discussions, but they get isolated. Like if we had more administrators to create an atmosphere where conversations were appreciated and celebrated, that would be great too. Because there's no reason why students should be heading diversity initiatives, why students are heading recruiting initiatives, why students are trying to create this atmosphere. It should be administrators. It should be people that they've hired, staff and administrators, that help build this. They're doing that at the undergrad level. It would be great if they had it more so on the grad level, too. And next, if we took more time to step down from our ivory towers, and I think Persis does do a great job of trying to reach out. Persis sends out her notes on the notes from the quad. And Whenever you say hi to her, she's she's willing to talk to you. Like Persis, Persis is trying to make Persis, 
you all know the yeah so to clarify Persis Drill is the provost now yes at Stanford yeah. yeah right and she does a lot of great things to try to be more accessible to students but I noticed that not everyone does that I wish we were more accessible not just from top down but across departments we're very isolated. Aero Astro and mechanical engineering should be one and the same. As in, y'all, y'all keep y'all building. We keep our buildings, <laughs> our neighborhood. I'm saying that we should. There's no reason why people in ME shouldn't know a whole bunch of faculty in Aero and Astro, and the vice versa. But everyone's siloed. Even within ME, they're siloed. I mean, I learned about the history of our department that people were beefing so much that they called it divisions. Yeah, there's there's you know the 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 Aero Astro skeletons in the closet that that maybe we'll get into someday. Oh yeah, y'all yeah. can talk about that. I don't want to hear about no skeletons. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying. I know Halloween coming up, Brad, but that ain't me. <laughs> I paid a kid to to dress as um the dude from Get Out because <laughs> he looked like him. I was like, bro, you look like the farmer from Get Out, the oh, grandpa. He looked like the dude who runs, who wore the hat. Yeah. I was like, bro, you look like him. I'll pay you, I'll pay you money if you do it. He's like, $20. I was like, bet. So I him <laughs> 30 and, Did you cover uh, the costume too? Or? Hell no. Nah. He's, <laughs> he's a grown undergrad who doesn't pay financial aid. <laughs> but, and finally would be, if we, we can keep the silos. That's fine. But I wish there was open communication across all boundaries. There are so many resources on campus but it's not in a clean, laid-out way that's easy for people to understand. I'm getting emails from 50 different people to tell me all the different resources. I'm not reading all those emails, Brad. You crazy? If you sent me one email that had all the resources in like 10 bullets and where to go, that's better. If we could organize that to have all these resources available for students, for students who are struggling at least they know where to go. So, three suggestions. One more therapist. Because that helps the majority population. And if you help the majority population with their mental issues or whatever things they're facing in their lives, they can then focus on opening up their mind to racial issues. LG, well, everyone cares about LGBTQ issues here and women's issues. But racial issues, class issues, if, as long as their minds aren't worried about anything else. So more therapists. I think that helps. Second, hire more administrators and more staff to help with initiatives to help build a better community at Stanford. I can't just have my advisor running around recruiting all the time. He shouldn't be doing it. I mean, he loves it. God bless his soul. Shouts out to Jesus. But <laughs> it shouldn't be him. It should be a lot more people, and it shouldn't just be students. And finally, find an easier way to communicate where are the resources on campus so that way all students can find out where they are, how they are, when they are, and they're not inundated with a whole bunch of jargon and a whole bunch of mess that they don't need in their inbox. I don't know if that's reasonable, but I know if I had an extra billion of my 36 billion lying around, I think that those would be great investments. I think those are fantastic. Uh, 
You lying. No. <laughs> he's just saying it. He's like, since we're on the podcast. Yeah, the hold on. House, Let's, uh, everything Chris Those says. are garbage. Dunked. Um, no, I mean, I the first one especially, I, I you know, when I. Didn't see that coming. <laughs> when I when I went to Stanford, I, I, I you know, I, I struggled a lot. And uh, I, I saw a therapist at some point, And it was, it was a Stanford therapist. But like. You know, you go and they basically tell you, yeah, you can meet with me a few times. And then if you want to keep having meetings with a therapist, you have to go somewhere else at Stanford. And I was yep. like, okay, is uh, so you just kind of got to jump out of this. And then I, I, I'm, I'm supposed to have my problem solved in th- like three meetings then. And, and this is, this is me. I, I, you know, I, I had a fairly good you know, background coming in, but like there's people with, with significantly, you know, worse troubles than me. And you're going to say, Oh yeah, you can come three times and then y- your problems will be solved after that. Right? Like y- you'll be good. You're good to go. Right. And let me, re- let me refer you to some outside specialists that you yeah. now have to pay for. Yeah, exactly. Like, and that, you know, you, what if you can't, it's okay. Thanks. Yeah. I guess my problems are solved now. Yeah, I mean, I think there is. I I have several thoughts, <laughs> but I'm telling you, you did not see that therapist thing coming. You did not see that coming at all. So I was, I was, I was surprised because I, I went, like, I also went to visit like. Uh, Caps at one point. <laughs> see, uh, I'll I'll tell you, I had I had a phone call with Caps, and by the end of that phone call, I was like, yeah, you're going to need more than three meetings. We're just going to send you to someone off campus. Um, but right, it's the same thing. Like so, like I said, you know, I had a recent death in my family with my cousin. Don't say sorry. I know, whatever. But and I thought, and I thought to myself, I was like, you know what? It would be nice to be able to sit down with the therapist to unpack this, so that way, all the racism I deal with. All the other stuff I deal with, trying to juggle an organization, trying to do well in my research. On top of the fact that my cousin died, that could help me unpack it and focus more back on my work. But I knew in the back of my head, three sessions. Yeah, absolutely. And then you're out. And that, if we had more therapists here, like if each student came in, I don't, right, do we have the budget for this idea? Doubtful. But more therapists could have exponential results. At least if they weren't kicking kids out after three sessions. Which makes sense because they are overworking the therapist. But man, if each set of, say, 50 kids was assigned to one therapist. So for every 50 kids there was a therapist that just stuck with them for their whole career. It also helps build trust with that therapist as a student. You don't want to tell someone your deepest, darkest fears, your ha- your hopes, your dreams, your aspirations, all of your failures, especially if you've done so well to this point and now you're terrible. Oh my gosh, how am I getting C's on everything when there's people getting A's? Because they're the only ones who are talking about it. There's other people getting C's, D's, F's. But if you had a situation where you could go to your therapist, tell them all these things, and you know this therapist is with you for the next three years? It frees up so much mental bandwidth. And I think if we had that, that would put us way over the edge of all the other top schools. Because 
we're thinking about less and we're able to focus more on things that matter to us more. Maybe some kids will hold themselves up in their work more and be more productive and great researchers and great faculty, blah, blah, blah. And I also think, I'm, I strongly believe that if kids aren't worried about their problems at home, their mental insecurities, their sadness, their like things that keep them awake at night because they have a consistent therapist on campus that they meet once a week, bro, I really think that could help a lot of the social tension across race, finance, class. Not all of it, please. Races, racism is way bigger than that. But I think it can contribute to more growth for people. And let me let me also tag on and why I think that is the case. When I first came here, I went to the Black House, the Black Community Services Center. And I was like, oh my gosh, Black House, Black people, Black people. Oh my gosh, we could talk about rapping and basketball. I went in there and I was surprised at this point because majority of the black undergrads I met were African um AAAS majors, African American and African studies. I grew up poor. You don't major in AAAS because you want a job, right? Now, if that's what you want to do, that's what you love, that's fine. But I went in there, and the first question I asked, there was a group of black people just sitting around. I was like, yo, why is everyone majoring in AAAS? And I got yelled at for 30 minutes. Two of which were a quarter black. Bruh. <laughs> and they told me about how the importance of their major, so that, and they tried to give me a lecture on the struggles of blacks in America and what it's like to live low income and what it's like to struggle. And I was like, oh, that's so cute as you get picked up in your Mercedes Benz. Oh, I remember I had $13 in my bank account for a semester. And I asked my mom for $20 so I could pay for ramen, rice, and beans so I could eat for the next five weeks. And my mom and I got into an argument. So... I think if those kids who I, I think the reason why they're so strong in their reaction or in their arguments and getting loud and up in arms is because there's some things that they also need to unpack as well with their race and their identity. And I think if they would do that to a black person, imagine what they do to a white person. Yeah, no, uh, that's one of those questions you can't even ask. Like, if you're white, and you cannot walk into the black house and be like, hey, why are you all majoring in African-American studies? I think we, we kind of have to, I guess, kind of kind of drink down some of our own medicine here because obviously, like, student issues are a thing and, and not quite, I wouldn't quite call it a political thing, but it's certainly an issue that lots of conversations happen around. But... There are certain things that administrators cannot come into those discussions and say, right? Like, I mean, not even talking about school for a minute, but they did, I think, an actual study a few years ago um, on hospital administrators. And they looked at, okay, so you've got this kid, right? And he's come in and he's got some congenital heart disease or whatever. 
as I think this was a follow-up to an actual event. I think maybe it was in the UK. I might just be completely pulling this out of thin air. But um, they were like, it's going to cost $5 million to save this kid's life. Bruh. Right? Um, and they gave two different groups of people, like, two different stories of, of what happened next in that situation. Right? One One scenario, the administrator spends the $5 million on the kid's you know, saving the kid's life, right? Mm-hmm. And everyone loves that. That's great. If Where are five million going to come from? Yeah, but but doesn't yeah. So so <laughs> then they give another group the the uh, story that says an administrator realized that like five million dollars in just like ICU support and and you know emergency like like that, that it was going to cut like twenty more people they were not going to be able to save right for that same five million dollars. Mm-hmm. And that, so they couldn't, they could like, they couldn't do the operation for the kid, right? That, that you know, that $5 million is going to have to come out of their operating budget and they just decided not to do it. And the reaction was like, that administrator needs to be pulled, right? It needs to be. That was the reaction? To, yeah. Like, like people were like, you, you, that get that person out of there. They're, they're inhuman. They're, they're a sociopath. Like they, they need to, you know, like that. And like, that's the, and I think that. Even today, if you got like an incredibly sympathetic administrator in school, like into a, a position as a dean or a vice provost or something like that, mm-hmm. if they came into a meeting of BGSA or of other uh, you know student groups on campus and said, "Hey, look, yeah, right, it, it, we think that it would cost a hundred thousand dollars per student, right? Like that's a ridiculous number, but you know it's going to cost a hundred thousand dollars per student to add." you know, full therapist support to expand our recruiting opportunities, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we have to, you know, trade that off against we have, administ- you know, donors who want to give $20 million to the medical school or whatever, right? And and we just, like, we're worried that if we try and siphon some of that off towards diversity recruiting, that, you know, it's going to go away. Like, that's just not something that they care about, so we're not going to bring that subject up with them, mm-hmm. right? Like, if, if they came and, and painted that picture that said that this is important to you, but there's a whole bunch of people that I have to deal with that don't care about you. And like, it's tough for me to make that trade. Like, I think people would be up in arms in that, in that same way and saying that like, you, you cannot come in here and say that my experience, that my experience and my validity as a person and my ability to thrive here, you know, should be traded or measured against like an operating budget somewhere else in the university. Hmm. Right. And so I think that, like, that's in in the same way we're telling, like, nominally, like, you know, even if you're part of the the powerful class, there are still lines that you can't cross, things that you can't say, you know, stuff that you can't put out into the open because then you're the enemy, right? And so, I like, I think it, the onus is on us to, to, at least in part, sit down with administrators, sit down with people and say, help us understand why this isn't a thing already. Right, because because we don't like we don't think we don't think that you're evil. We don't think that you don't care about us. We think that you're under some kind of incredible pressure to to make trades and, and to weigh, you know, options that, you know against one another. And you you don't have complete freedom. Like you know, we talk about the endowment, but I, like that money isn't just you know a big ass pot of money no that way. they can put wherever. Right, like so so help us understand what trade offs you're having to make here, and and. You know, be real, be open, and like we will, pro- like we will be empathetic with you in the same way that you're trying. We're trying to ask you to be empathetic with our experience. You know, even though like we we 
might not think that you're completely sympathetic and, you know, you've got a $200,000 salary and at the end of the day you go home and, and talk to your wife about how tough it is that you had to, you know, spend a million dollars on a new, you know, resurfacing the football stadium instead of you <laughs> know, providing, you know, mental health services, right? And, like, we, we might not think that, you know, that that compares to the psychological trauma of having a recent death in the family and not feeling like your community here at Stanford supports you in that. Right. We might not be sympathetic, but we're not going to we're not going to try and shame you or, or you know, demand that you recognize the superiority of our suffering. Right. And, and I think that that like that's a friction, too. Right. Even as like student leaders, like I like I'm not going to name any name, but like even when I was an undergrad, like I had students that like I would start to kind of inch that toward and be like, you know, th- this money's got to come from somewhere. Right. And then if if you even suggest that, you know, trading something that that is sacred to somebody that, that you know, to them is the reason that this place or this institution or, or whatever organization you're talking about exists versus something to them that's just kind of incidental. Right. Like like that becomes a, 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 a an identity dividing line. Right. About what you care about. And I think kind of making those lines a little bit fuzzier. And kind of recognizing that the people across from you have different values and that, you know, maybe this conversation isn't going to reconcile it and we're not going to come out of this room feeling like we're all on the same page and we all want exactly the same thing, but that we have an, an understanding of what it is you care about and how can we work together in that. And so, I think that that, like, that is something that I, I feel like I struggle to see and, and don't see people kind of working towards in, in terms of, like, open the door for conversation, even knowing that you're going to come out of it, maybe feeling a little insulted, maybe feeling a little devalued by the people that you're talking to. And, you know, bringing this up is kind of what makes me extremely upset when people say, oh, you're just selling your soul if you go work in tech instead of postdocing. If I'm a school administrator and I'm the next Persis, first of all, that name is dope. <laughs> and Drell. Yo, like the like. first time I met Persis, I was like, yo, Persis, your name is Superfly. And I told her her name is Superfly. And she's like, oh, well, thank you. It's Superfly. So <laughs> I wanted, I think I might name my kid Persis. I don't even know what gender. I, yeah. I, mean, I don't think it matters too much. It's, it's, thing, I feel like maybe like we just offended like. Latvians, or I don't know where that name comes from. I don't like, know either, bro. I want to. That's got like a lot of history behind it, and we, you know, Persis Cameron. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> so here's here's what I'm saying. This is why you know I get upset about the selling the soul thing. Like, oh, first of all, I'm extremely religious. Like, I, you know, I'm a, I'm a person who likes to pray. I'm excited for church on Sunday, but I'm also not ignorant with my faith. I will not put my faith upon anyone else. If you're not real, if you don't believe in what I believe in, if you don't agree with what I believe, it doesn't matter to me. Cuz you're your own person. So it, that is one of those things that bothers me when people say that I'm selling my soul. As someone who takes my soul extremely seriously, <laughs> don't tell me that because I want to go to Google I'm selling my soul. But let me get let me get to the Google point. Or the startup point. Let's say I graduate from here and I have a job offer, $90,000 a year to be a professor, or $500,000 to work at a hedge fund. 
with a clear track to possibly running that hedge fund. Highly unlikely that that's going to be my first job offer. Let's say that gets to the point. And I decide to work at this hedge fund and make a whole bunch of money and people tell me I'm selling my soul and they criticize me. But you know what they won't criticize? If 20 years down the road, I have $2 billion, $3 billion, $4 billion, $10 billion, and they're still at a postdoc. <laughs> we love getting them fellowship checks, man. Or they're a faculty member at a school that I want to donate to. <laughs> and we go back to the thing that I brought up maybe within the first 20 minutes where it's the struggle that I have where it's do I want to be a professor or do I want to go work in industry and make the bread, the Subway, the Panera, <laughs> the Dave's Toast. You know how Dave, you know the no, dude who escaped from. Oh, that I don't dude. Know Dave's da- either, yeah. Man, it's some dude who Is escaped prison. Is some guy prison. named Dave who makes toast? Yeah, he escaped prison. <laughs> like, he escaped prison. He's like, bro, I'm going to make some bread because I was in the pen. Like, I don't know what it is. <laughs> but now we get to the situation where, so I always I like to ask people, what is your number? And I'm not talking about how many people you slept with. I mean, what is the amount of money that if you had it, you'd be able to do all the things that you want to the level that you would like to do? And you would not need another dollar. Where if you got any more money, it only compounds the minimum level where you can reach match- maximum happiness with money. My number is $17 billion. The details. <laughs> right? Y'all laugh. The details. If I broke it down, you'd be like, holy cow, that makes sense. The details are not important. But I would do is one of the things I would do with my money is I would donate to the school and I would say to them, hey, I would like you to take, let's say I donate $1 billion. I would like you to take 200 million of this of this money and spend it on therapists. Just on mental health. I don't want any more flyers. I don't want any more how you people saying that you care. I want therapists. I want way more therapists of many different backgrounds. Black, white, Latino. I also remember I also said white and I mean white males as well, not just white females. I want all these people here because I believe mental health is extremely important. Now, you could tell me I'm selling my soul all you want, but then you're going to go ahead and you'd be like, dang, I really wish I had a therapist that I could talk to once a week at school. That's why I have this struggle. That benefit, though, the beauty of that. And then also, if I spend like, okay, that's 200, let's say 300, on just fellowships from students that are non-traditional to Stanford. This includes low-income white males. This includes East Asian that aren't from China, Japan, Korea. Or this also includes low-income Chinese Americans, too. Now, I'm going to monitor this because if it were up to them, they'd just have all white (laughs) Chinese American and definitely a boatload of women because affirmative action definitely helps white women the most. But I mean, let's, you know, this is Stanford. Let's let's calculate the kale divergence of the kale divergence. Yes. The the dog, the dog love, the love of dogs versus people. But right. I would put these money to these initiatives that I think, you know what? Here you go, Stanford. You don't have to worry about trying to deal with a donor 
who's like, here's $20 million, spend it just on the football stadium. Here's $30 million, let's just spend it on this high-performance eating that none of the grad students can eat at. Oh, my fault. Was I not supposed to expose that? The (laughs) fact that high-performance eating came out last year and grad students just now found out about it this year? And we can't even eat at it? But that's okay. What is high-performance eating? Exactly. So basically, um, in certain dining halls, select dining halls, they have what's called high-performance eating. High-performance eating is designed for when athletes come back from practice, it's not good enough for them to just be able to eat at a dining hall. They're supposed to have high-performance do- food, right? Our dining halls slap, bruh. Like, like two pimps and one prostitute <laughs> said, excuse me, daddy, I didn't make any money this week. What? Like, that kind of slaps. And so with so this type of go ahead. they just get better food. Bro, they go from apples and oranges, which is still great, to sure. berries. Berries. Wow. Yeah, it's like high performance, like great food for if you're trying to cut, bodybuild, or be an athlete. And grad students can't come to it. Now, what that tells me is that there was money that came to the university for athletes. And then the university was like, Come on, we can't make it just athletes. We can at least cut out the grads because we know the grads don't eat at these certain dining halls. And so we'll have it at these certain dining halls so it makes less of a fuss. But that's the thing. I would love to right, put in this money and be like, okay, mm-hmm. here's $200 million for mental health. Here's $300 million for diversity initiative, like fellowships, administrators, staff. And here's $500 million where we can negotiate where you put this money. Let's talk about it. And and you know what I also want? I want students input on my money too. Here's 500 million. What do the students think? Send out a poll. If I have to pay you 1 million, I don't care. Send out a poll, a doodle, I don't care what it is. A Groupon, wait, that's not it. <laughs> <laughs> and say, "Hey students, if we were to re- we received hundreds of millions of dollars from a donor, what's something that you would like to see change in the university? And I would love for us to look at the responses, and I love for it to see. I'm worried that people who are underrepresented, their voice might get drowned out. But I am still curious to see what students would say, because when I'm not in the university for 20 years, because I'm making boogoo bucks, stacking bread, getting this paper. I might not know what's the pressing issue at the university at the time. And so I would love to hear what students think, student leaders, and then use that money to help them out that way. And if you want to call that selling my soul, if another atheist tells me that I'm selling my soul. (sighs) You're selling your soul, Chris. Ah! (laughs) (laughs) You just set him up for that one. I think within, I feel like it was within six months, like I, like even coming here, I had started to feel this conflict between the fact that like, like we all chose to come here, right? Like we all, we all applied here. We all chose to come here and there's, there's a reason for that. And, and most of the reasons rely on a massive edifice of wealth here to support certain conditions that Mm -hmm. are, are conducive both to our learning and to, you know, our ability to go out into the world and put down that diploma and say, okay, I went to Stanford, like what you got. And 
like legit we can wait for the offers to come in in a way that all of us went to big you know undergrad state schools and and shouts out yeah. would you go alex i went to Rutgers. me and jordan actually knew each other in undergrad what yeah. and now you both are here same department also, yeah, he, so we he's were the same year. Now he's, he's out of the rat race. Oh shoot! <laughs> yeah, that's, that's why you got a closet. <laughs> yeah, that's why. That's, that's why, why you got, got a closet. <laughs> hold up, I, let me hold up. The plumber's here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you guys got to stare. <laughs> but it's like, yeah, and, and I think like like I like I came here like I'm an engineer, and and that's mm. that's what I've been devoting now a fair chunk of my lifetime to is you know developing skills in engineering. And obviously, I'm, I'm very passionate about my field, and I care about the future of my field. But I got to look at it and say, okay, I can be a postdoc, I can be, I can be a faculty member, or I can go work for you know some quantitative trading firm, and I can pay for three fellowships and still have more money than I would be making at a, a you know as a postdoc left over to live on. So think about that: a black graduate, one of two in his department in aerospace then donates to pay for three black students to go ahead and get their PhD. Then one of them donates for three. So now you have a situation where you have, let's say you do that over the course of 10 years, 30 fellowships. Yeah, and it, but it's the, like the, this lack, there's, there's definitely a lack of appreciation of the fact that like it, it takes money to do anything right even if it's just paying you know a brilliant person who would be great at this job to do this job instead of going and doing something else right like like the circumstances that drew us here that that create one of the finest universities in the world you know shouts out and I, and I want all of my kids to go to this school yeah like that like that takes economizing like that takes trade-offs between Oh, this is really passionate. You know, I'm really passionate about this, and this is really important to me. But I can go do this other thing, and I can enable other people to do better work, right? Even if you're, like, even if you're not a research, like, if you're in a research support, like, if you would be better as an administrator, like, the ability to understand research, to understand the operations behind that, to and and to facilitate like what they need, that like that combination is incredibly rare. But you will find nobody. Nobody in any PhD program coming in here and telling me, like, oh, actually, my, my goal is really to be like, you know, a dean of a department and spend most of my time like filing grants, making sure that people have the money <laughs> that they have, that it's being distributed appropriately. Not one. No. Right? That is an incredibly important function. And we, and we spend plenty of time complaining about like, oh, like, why aren't they doing this and why aren't they doing that? But then like if somebody like if somebody came into class and was like, Oh yeah, you know this this optimization algorithms is pretty nice. Have we looked at you know using it to to distribute research funds based on like prior performance or something like that? Right. But like that like that's not a thing that exists. And like, the, I mean, the truth is like that stuff exists. It's called you know business curricula. But if somebody here, like a couple people in our class, went to go join a management consulting agency Ooh. and like. You mentioned that to people, and it's like people recoil, and it's like, oh, you sell out. Oh, you, you went to go yeah. sell your soul. Ah, <laughs> I'd much rather drive a Honda Civic as you drive a Benz and go vacation in Bora Bora every month. Get 
out of here, bro. Like, I'm not trying to hear it. You come from so much privilege where you could just tell people and shame them because they want to go for income because at the very least, you could just go back to your mom and dad's house, which is cool. That's fine. Go ahead and do that. I'm glad you have that opportunity. But at the same time, don't judge me for doing this, right? I have a certain privilege myself. I'm black, but I have the great privilege of my family is close. We love each other. I talk to them all the time on the phone. We're on group meet together and we send silly memes and gifts all day to each other. <laughs> and this is not just my brother and I. This is my cousins, my sets of cousins. We just message each other and we're like, you know what? We're going to go meet each other in this place for Thanksgiving. So my privilege is I don't need as much social validation as other people because my family's so tight. I have that privilege. But I'm not going to go tell people to their face, uh, well, you should probably treat people this way or treat people that way because you're doing the wrong social move. No. No. You know what? Alex, man, talk to me, man. What are your <laughs> thoughts, bro? Well, my thought on that was because you've said this a few times and I do think there are people out there who say those things and they are fully serious. They're, they're, they genuinely say this and, and they're they they mean it and they're like oh you're you know you're you're the worst you do this whatever but there is a part of me that that knows there are also a significant amount of people out there who will say that but they're also not serious they're they're they're, mm. they're joking mm. they they aren't and and I just it, in my mind I don't I, I think it's clear that there needs to you know I I don't want people who say those things as a joke to to think that we're by any means giving them a hard time because, because, you know, oh, yeah, you're going working here. And like, yeah, that that's, it is still incredibly rude to say. And it's, it, even as a, it's a joke, it's not like, you, are you going to judge their life decisions? You know, you haven't been in their shoes. You haven't done what they've done. You, you're not where they are. But there's a difference between saying that and meaning it and saying, and, and there are mm-hmm. people who do that mm-hmm. and saying it and, and, you know, like, eh, maybe I'll do that. You know what I mean? Like, eh. That that was that was what I was thinking because you said that a few times and every time I think like there are some people I know who would say that and I never for a second thought that they were serious. Yeah, you know, I, but it like it's still kind of like waving the identity flag and and just kind of saying like oh yeah like you know we are the people that despise like you know going to make money you know what I mean like like it it's a joke but. If somebody said, okay, well, I want to be a professor, right? Like, mm-hmm. nobody's going to say, like, oh, you want to just, like, you know, be world famous <laughs> and, like, you know, be, be world renowned in your research. Or you just right? want to Doing it for the glamour. Like, like there, there, are th- there are certain pursuits that we assume are primarily selfishly motivated and certain pursuits that we assume are primarily altruistically motivated. Um, yeah. Even no. though we all know professors who damn sure didn't get into this you know, business because they wanted to be giving back to their students. And you know what? And we know plenty of people who go into high powered careers because they want to like build up their community, build up their families and whatnot. But, Mm -hmm. but for some reason, like there's just this disconnect between what, like what we as a group identify as like a sacred value is something that like, this is, this is the ultimate reason, right? That even if you mm-hmm. want to go out and make money, like we're only going to like you and think well of you if you then devote some of that money back to research or, or, or to building a premium. Like if, you know, if, if you said no, like, no, I just want to make millions of dollars and, and buy a bunch of Lamborghinis and it's just like, all right, fine. 
Like, like that's that's your life. But like we we almost like reserve a right to judge people and what they do with their life based on how much it benefits our communities and and how much it benefits things that we care about. Yeah. Right. And I, and I think. I, sorry, it's hard. <laughs> the I I think a part of that too. I think it's it comes from a sense of superiority. It's almost as though a lot of people default to the state of, oh, you're the you're going to go make this money and you're going to go be the rich person who who buys the Lamborghinis and 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 doesn't yeah. give back and that sort of thing. And as you know, as though that is is they're being physically hurt by that. But you know, that's not <laughs> generally the world isn't black and white. So like, oh, word. <laughs> oh my fault oh oh someone should have told me that oh man you know I'll, <laughs> when i get pulled over by a cop next time and I let him know yeah <laughs> sir get out of the vehicle we know how your kind like to act and i'll be like well the world is a black and white <laughs> oh man it, you know i was thinking in my head when we were going at that that joke is slightly oppressive, right? It's kind of, it's to a lesser degree. It's like saying it's like it's it, uh, it's a microaggression it, because it's not the accepted practice, the generally accepted practice. If I walked around and and someone went up to me and they were like, "Oh yeah, you know I'm atheist," and I was like, <laughs> "Well, looks like someone sold their soul." <laughs> <laughs> right even if i'm yeah. joking if this is a christian university where i'm the majority and this person is the only atheist that joke is oppressive it's just like you know i i told when i was trying to explain racism and that it's a power dynamic and a lot of times black people say black people cannot be racist i am not a race expert but from what i heard racism requires a power dynamic and as an engineer, I also know that there are boundaries to every system. So you can have different power dynamics in different situations, like a professor in a classroom. In that, the professor has the power. So I said, all right, if the boundaries are a basketball court in my neighborhood and a white boy steps on the court and the common joke is, this boy white, he can't play basketball. That's oppressive. And it's racist. So I, I think that's and it's a micro that in that case it's also a microaggression. And that's that's one of the things that's that's rough about that because for so many people here, they can make that joke and they can see it as just a joke because for them, it isn't life or death whether they go make money or not. But for someone who it is, no one wants to make a joke about a starving kid who can't eat. But as a poor kid at school, if I don't go make money, I will become that starving kid who can't eat. So it's, it's, it's just like it's, it's like shifted racism, shifted microaggressions, shifted oppression. You know, I was talking to one of my white female friends today who went to Pitt with me. And she was part of the same diversity program as me. And her parents are from Slovenia. And she's a first-generation American. And she grew up poor. 
in Pittsburgh. And she said, it's crazy. I was so excited to come to California because it's so liberal and so open-minded. And she had a lot of black friends and a lot of Latin friends because she was in the same diversity program as me. And she's like, what really blows my mind the most is how racist this place is. How racist it really is. The fact that Jordan has a white friend that he wants to work on a podcast with blows my mind. And I think it's a beautiful thing. It really is. The fact that he has a white wife, not so surprising. But uh, <laughs> I have a wife. Oh, my uh, gosh. <laughs> nobody listening to that knows that joke. <laughs> nobody was on that bus. Nobody was on that bus because it's all black people. <laughs> but this is a beautiful thing to see that you two are friends and actually friends. And it's cross-racial lines. And I I've actually been- hate his guts. You do? Yeah, no, I'm, yeah, I'm real no, glad he's, that he's, he's like a thousand miles I'm, away The distance now. has really only improved our relationship. Oh, man. You know what's crazy? <laughs> Dang. It's wild because I'm watching as the sun sets on yeah, this, that's man. Like, yeah. you, got, like, you got a window. So, like, all, like, so we're doing this over Skype, and like we can see like Alex is like gradually descending into darkness. <laughs> right? I don't want to get up and miss like, something. Hey, like, your laptop screen is giving you like this it's halo the glow effect. Of my- yeah, bro. Yeah, yeah. And like... And like one of his closet doors are open. It's like cracked open in the yeah. side oh, corner right. of the screen. So I feel like as soon as we're like, and that is the farmhouse. Yeet! So we're going to snag him <laughs> and just take him into the abyss. <laughs> and that was the last we ever saw of him. And that's what we call, that's what we call monster oppression. Like that right <laughs> Oh, yeah, no, there was a point where I was like, I really want to get up and turn the light on, but like, I'm, this is such a good conversation. Yeah. I can't. Stop lying, bro. You're sitting here lying again, bro. You didn't think it was lit, bro. <laughs> <laughs> right? Uh, Even the laugh is fake. <laughs> like, he's just, he, he, just, he's lying just, to us. I just, <laughs> yeah, like the plumber is right off screen. Right? Yeah, the yeah. plumber's there. <laughs> he's right there. He's just, oh, yeah. The plumber's tag me out. Tag me out. I'm going to pull it from the closet. Oh, shit, the plumber. Oh, God, the pipes are up again. Sorry, guys, I got to tip out. (laughs) It was also so, God, it was so calm. It was like, oh, okay, we just reached a really good pivotal moment. This guy, and he's not Hey, Alex, is is there anything you have to say about the Me Too movement? Oh, I got to go talk to this plumber. Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. The pipes are leaking. (laughs) Oh, man. I was I knew I was gonna get shit for that. I was like, there's no way. There's literally a zero percent chance. It was perfect that timing. I don't get shit for that. Uh, I think I think we're gonna call that an episode. Yeah, I think I think, I think uh, that's a good time too. Yeah. It's uh wow god, we've been recording for For about two hours now? Two hours, yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Chris, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you so hey, much this, for being on the show. Thank you. Amazing. Y'all don't even know what I do. That's what's crazy. Yeah, I, I know. We never got we had, to the we research. We had like a whole Google Doc of like questions all about what you do, <laughs> what your research is. Like, what it's just like, no, you came out the gate. Like, yo, let me tell you how fucked up this. No, <laughs> <laughs> but, but real talk though, I love going to Stanford, and like I said earlier, I wouldn't have changed it for the world. Like, going here was one of the greatest decisions I've ever made because at any point in time, I could drop out and make. Bread, right? <laughs> and I have met a, a small group of people that I can consider friends, right? Obviously, Jordan and I are cool enough so that way he invited me and had me on the show, right? And now right. I know who Alex is through the screen. What a monster's <laughs> going to take him. 
right. So, you know, because. Yeah, it's over. So. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for tuning in, everyone. All right. Thanks. All right. See you on the flip side. Are we done recording? Uh, uh, we're we're still recording. Let we're me st- let me hit stop. Let me hit stop. Yeah, hit stop, bro. <laughs> this should be a while. Yeah, that's all I'm saying. Bro. <laughs>